0: Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. When Latin America and British America began to be colonized in the 16th and 17th centuries, Latin America was wealthier and uh, by most measures, and objective observers could uh, reasonably expect that Latin America would have brighter prospects. In fact, what happened was a reversal of fortune, to use a term from one of the contributors to to the book that we are featuring today. British America got rich, and Latin America fell further and further behind. This gap has produced all sorts of theories uh, that attempt to explain the divergent paths. Is it culture, imperialism, uh, geography, globalization, inequality, institutions, the list could go on and on, and the theories have contributed to an equally uh, diverse set of policy prescriptions, which in turn have also helped to uh, create wide policy swings. The region has very erratic uh, policies and politics. What uh, what Mexican intellectual Octavio Paz said uh, about Mexico is also true about Latin America. It is an eccentric outpost of the West. The rise of populist leaders like Hugo Chavez and the complete rejection of the rules of the game as personified by Evo Morales has uh, perplexed Americans, but it has also pitted Latin Americans in very uh, heated debates. The differences in the North and in the South have also led to misunderstandings. Mexican writer Enrique Krause notes in his chapter to today's uh, uh, book that there is also a moral gap characterized by the incomprehension and contempt on the part of the United States and ignorance and resentment on the part of Mexico. I think that's largely true of of Latin America as a whole. But, of course, it's difficult today to discuss uh, Latin America as a whole since the region is so divided Uh, It's divided among those who prefer various forms of populism and those who wish to see a democratic, modern Latin America that is open to the world. Some countries have opted for the former model. Some uh, are opting for the latter. The fact that we are seeing divergent paths in Latin America is itself notable and raises many questions. Uh, I'm very pleased uh, that some of the answers can be found in the book we are featuring today, Falling Behind, Explaining the the Development Gap Between Latin America and the United States. I'm also pleased to have with us today uh, two leading experts who uh, will help us think through the big issues of development in the Americas. So let me begin by introducing the editor uh, of the book, Francis Fukuyama. He is a professor of international political economy at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He's also the director of that school's international development program. Of course, uh, he is best known as being a uh, creative thinker who challenges our way of looking at, at the world every few years on some big issue. He is the author of The End of History and The Last Man and various other books, including Trust, the Social Virtues and the Creation of Prosperity, The Great Disruption, state building, our post-human future, and America at the crossroads, democracy, power, and the neoconservative legacy. He has been a member of the Political Science Department of the Rand Corporation and of the policy planning staff of the U.S. Department of State, and he has been a professor of public policy at George Mason University. He has also been a member of the President's Council on Bioethics, Please uh, help me welcome back uh, Francis Fukuyama.
1: Well, thanks uh, very much, Ian. I'm really uh, very pleased to be able to talk about my uh, new book in this forum. The last time I was here, I actually was talking about uh, my uh, biotechnology book where I called for more regulation. Uh, Calling for more regulation at Cato was uh, an uphill struggle, but no one fell out of their seats, and I got a very... uh, very uh, good hearing, uh, so i 'm really grateful to be able to uh, to return. Uh, this uh, volume uh, came out of a conference that was originally held at Ditella University in Buenos Aires uh, in late two thousand and five. Uh, I should credit my uh, colleague at Seis Roet Roette, uh, who was instrumental in and in, um, uh, one of his students, Roberto Russell, uh, for setting up uh, uh, the conference uh, and um, uh, most edited books, I think, are are difficult to summarize because it's very it's like herding cats when you're the editor of a, uh, uh, of a volume like this. But I think probably more than most, we managed to uh, elicit certain long-term uh, themes, and of course had some very good contributors from Latin America. We had uh, Tulio Halpern Donghi, Enrique Krause wrote the uh, introduction, Natalia Botana. Uh, And among American academics, uh, James Robinson at Harvard, uh, Adam Jaworski, Jorge Dominguez, uh, uh, Reardon, uh, Rowett, and and Francisco Gonzalez. And uh, I think that uh, if you look at the uh, chapters, the single most important uh, conclusion uh, or or insight, I would say, that uh, having participated in this project has given me uh, is about the interaction between economic and political factors uh, in determining long-term growth patterns that explain the divergence between uh, North America and Latin America. As Ian mentioned, uh, an estimate is given in, in, I believe, the Robinson chapter that in the year 1700 per capita GDP in Spanish America – uh, was about $521. Don't ask me what year <laughs> that's denominated in, versus about 527 in North America. And the per capita income in the Sugar Island of Cuba uh, was uh, higher than that of uh, Massachusetts. But as the um, the historical chapters in the book indicate, uh, the gap uh, opens up uh, periodically in, in certain periods. And so the first one, important one, was uh, from the 1820s on, as uh, different countries in Latin America won their uh, independence from, uh, from Spain and eventually uh, uh, Brazil from Portugal, uh, that, compared to the American Revolution, was a much more tumultuous time and had a much more uh, negative impact on growth. And growth, in fact, did not really uh, recur in most Latin American countries until the period after uh, 1870. And in fact, the century between 1870 and 1870 Uh, and 1970 was uh, one uh, of relatively good performance, obviously interrupted by the Great uh, uh, Depression uh, and other periodic uh, uh, downturns. But it was a period in which, in in, in per capita GDP terms, uh, Latin America as a whole did manage to uh, uh, somewhat close the per capita income gap. But then it expanded again uh, very dramatically uh, after the debt crisis, Uh, brought on by the rise in oil prices in the 1970s and um, has continued up until the last few years uh, when once again you had uh, reasonably good growth uh, in Latin uh, America. Uh, So the book uh, looks at different factors that uh, explain the gap uh, uh, for reasons that I will not uh, uh, try to elaborate here. Uh, Obviously, Uh, Policies Matter a Great Deal, which was really the focus of the Washington Consensus and uh, a lot of the policy advice from Washington in the 1980s uh, and 90s, but I think most of the book's authors would uh, agree that uh, it's really institutions standing behind the policies that are uh, critical. Obviously, there are certain basic economic institutions like property rights and rule of law uh, that are critical for long-term investment. Uh, there are uh, a series of critical political institutions. The chapter that I wrote on uh, institutional design focused on um, the need for uh, institutions to be both um, uh, able to solve uh, social conflicts and inclusive uh, at the same time that they can actually be sufficiently decisive to deal with um, the kinds of uh, domestic economic and foreign policy issues that governments have to do. Uh, And finally, uh, an important issue of social inequality, which in my view uh, is the underlying uh, cause of uh, the long-term growth uh, gap uh, between the two regions. Uh, And so I want to elaborate that a little bit about how this mechanism works. Uh, A lot of economists will tell you that if you do a cross-country regression of gini coefficients against uh, growth rates for you know any particular year uh, over the last uh, generation or so you won't find a particular uh, good correlation between uh, high inequality and um, uh, and growth and so in latin america chile and brazil both have uh, relatively high gini coefficients for the region and yet they've been both politically stable and in chile's case is obviously the star a performer in terms of uh, economic growth. And so people will say, well, what's the problem? Uh, but that's where I think that the long-term perspective becomes uh, much uh, more important, because I think that looking at the history uh, of growth in these two regions over a 300-year period, as opposed to a 30-year period, uh, reveals the following, which is that Uh, any highly unequal oligarchic society can actually do quite well in terms of economic growth for about a generation or so. Uh, A good example of that was in Mexico under the Porfiriato, under Porfirio Diaz, um, uh, between 1876 and the Mexican Revolution in 1911, Mexico turned in a very um, uh, respectable uh, uh, rate of economic growth per capita income grew. They actually closed the uh, gap uh, somewhat with the United States, but that growth was all based on an extremely narrow uh, distribution, uh, essentially, of of economic rents. What that state was about was the distribution of rents to a very narrow uh, oligarchic elite uh, that left uh, a large part of of Mexican society uh, out. And the result was the Mexican Revolution and then a period of uh, great instability in Mexico from 1911. And and in fact, they didn't really get back onto a solid growth path uh, until well uh, into the late uh, uh, 1930s. Uh, I think that in many ways, Venezuela uh, is uh, another example of that. From the uh, Pacto de Punto Fijo in 1957 up until the collapse of oil prices uh, in um, in the mid 1980s uh, Venezuela was a stable democracy and had reasonably good uh, reasonably good growth, uh, but because of the way that the regime that democratic regime was was basically in the business of, of redistributing uh, oil rents to certain uh, Uh, particular uh, political groups, uh, it was not a broadly shared growth. And it laid the basis for the coups and then the final rise to power of our friend uh, Hugo Chavez. And in that sense, uh, it does seem to me that uh, what you're seeing going on in the uh, uh, Andes right now with Chavez and Morales and Rafael uh, Correa and other populist leaders is not I mean, that's not the fundamental cause of the problem there. Uh, these leaders uh, are, I think, symptomatic of a deeper problem, which has to do with the fact that, uh, by and large, growth has not been um, uh, equally uh, distributed in that region. This uh, Robinson's chapter is very good in pointing out that, as he puts it, Latin America was born with a birth defect uh, that as opposed to the kinds of colonists that settled North America, uh, the um, Spanish Empire in the New World uh, in uh, Spain and in Peru was an extractive, uh, rent-producing uh, empire that basically created a very hierarchical system using slave labor uh, to extract uh, gold, silver, and other commodities and ship it uh, back to the metropolitan uh, country. And in a sense, the political institutions uh, throughout the whole region uh, Reflected uh, that original distribution of resources and distribution of political power, which uh, countries in the region have been very good at passing uh, down over the uh, uh, over the generations. And so, what you have uh, in a place like Bolivia, I think, is a classic. You know, um, my my former teacher Sam Huntington uh, recently passed away. Uh, his model for political instability. Uh, that he outlined in his great 1968 book Political Order and Changing Societies was one in which you have socioeconomic uh, modernization, but it outstrips the capacity of political institutions to accommodate uh, the new rising political actors uh, and as a result uh, leads to a delegitimization of the the, um, system as a whole instability, coups, civil wars, uh, and the like. And that seems to me exactly what is going on uh, in a country like Bolivia. If you actually look at inclusion and participation on a certain dimension, uh, the indigenous people in that country have participated like never before. The rates of school attendance, of voting, and other things have been going up steadily uh, over the past uh, 40 years. Uh, What has really not happened is a more meaningful sense of uh, political participation uh, and uh, ability to um, uh, share in the benefits of the growth that has happened uh, in that uh, system. And so, I mean, this is one of the reasons, I mean, so it seems to me just a a kind of classic case of Huntingtonian um, uh, uh, instability. Uh, So what you do about this uh, in terms of policy prescriptions uh, I think that um, you know, virtually every one of the authors uh, pointed to uh, this underlying uh, 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 social you know, maldistribution of both resources and opportunities and, and, and so forth as lying at the core. Uh, in my chapter, at the conclusion, I make an argument that uh, we really need to uh, go back to social policy, uh, to a smart social policy uh, because uh, the formula over the last 30 years uh, is, a, you know, is, is, a, is a good one, uh, which is trade-driven uh, economic growth uh, that in cases of countries like China and India has led to dramatic decreases in uh, poverty. And where that's happened in a country like Chile, uh, uh, there has been substantial uh, reduction uh, in poverty. But I don't think that you can worry simply about poverty, uh, without also worrying about inequality. And the two, uh, you know, uh, go together. China, for example, despite its impressive uh, growth record, has become a far more unequal country over the last 30 years. Its Gini coefficient has risen uh, by almost 10 points in the last 25 years because that growth is not uh, being distributed. Uh, broadly, and I would say that they are uh, building up the basis, especially as we go into a global downturn, uh, for a certain amount of political instability uh, in the future based on the pent-up demands of people that do not feel like they're included uh, in that growth. What you do about this uh, in a certain way, uh, I think that there is both good news and bad news, uh, because I think that a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the underlying social inequality. Uh, it, it has cultural and, and structural roots, but it is also very much abetted by public policy. The OECD sponsored a uh, study um, uh, last year on fiscal policy in Latin America, in which they pointed out, among other things, that uh, if you look at Gini coefficients before and after taxes, uh, in uh, Europe uh, and in North America, uh, uh, the two uh, the gini coefficients fall uh, very substantially after taxes because there is a genuine uh, regressive, uh, uh, progressive uh, redistribution from higher income earners to lower income ones. Uh, before taxes, Latin America's coefficient is really not that much different from Europe's, but uh, Europe's gets abated very substantially. In many Latin American countries, the Gini coefficient actually goes up uh, after taxes, or and overall uh, there's only a very marginal decrease because the way that uh, uh, the composition of, of, of spending uh, is very bad from uh, From an equality uh, standpoint, um, a lot of the benefits go to middle class and and relatively well to do uh, uh, citizens and are not targeted particularly well uh, at the poor. And this is familiar to anyone that's familiar with Latin American politics. They go into, you know, public sector pension systems. They go into, for example, you know, Brazil's constitution mandates 20 percent of the federal budget be spent on education, which sounds really good, except that most of that is spent on free higher education, which is extremely uh, high quality uh, if you can get into the University of Sao Paulo, but it spends relatively less on primary and secondary universal education, which means that only middle-class parents that can afford to send their kids to uh, private schools and tutors really have uh, the opportunity to take advantage uh, of that extremely uh, well-funded, good public uh, university system. And so it's an example of the way that public policy actually stands in the way of uh, fixing this uh, problem. Uh, I, in my chapter, talk about uh, conditional cash transfer programs, which I think if Uh, uh, well-designed, can be um, actually, uh, in in fact, in in the case of of Brazil's Bolsa Familia, has actually had a measurable impact in the uh, modest reduction uh, in income inequality uh, that has taken place in Brazil uh, over the past uh, 15 years. Uh, We can talk about this perhaps more in the uh, question-answer period. Uh, uh, I think that the important adjective is smart social policy or well-designed social policy, because uh, it is very easy to uh, badly design social policies that basically end up as a form of patronage. And I think that, um, you know, the problem with populism in a place like Venezuela is not that Hugo Chavez is running social programs for the poor, uh, because I think the poor des- deserve you know, eye clinics and, and uh, 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 subsidized food and, and, and other things. The problem is that he is designing them in a way that are simply not uh, sustainable, uh, or they're sustainable only under assumptions of uh, oil prices being at certain levels that uh, uh, you know, will not pan out over the long run, uh, and they should not uh, be used as sources of political patronage. They should be introduced as universal you know, means-tested programs, uh, and the like. Uh, the final issue I want to deal. I actually did two chapters in this book. so one was a concluding chapter that, that talked about the, the broad ways in which you deal with the problem of social equality. My uh, other chapter was about the design of political institutions, in which uh, I argued that uh, in a certain sense, the broad design of institutions matter less than people uh, oftentimes think because the ability to get institutions to work properly is oftentimes more a matter of political culture than the specific uh, characteristics of the way that power is distributed within a particular constitution. I'll just give you a couple of examples of that. Um, The Mexican constitution uh, and the American constitution are actually not that different. Uh, they were, in fact, the Mexican constitution was modeled on the American constitution in certain respects. It's a presidential system. It has uh, federalism. The electoral rules ha- are, are, are considerably dif- different uh, because the Mexican, you know, they've got term limits and no uh, uh, first past the post and, and, and the like. Uh, but the difference really in the running of the systems has to do with things that are not in the constitution under the hegemony of the PRI, uh, it looked like an extremely strong presidential system because that, that single party uh, was able to control both the executive and the legislative branches and was able to use its control and its patronage to make the system produce the kinds of political decisions that that, that uh, they saw fit. When uh, Vicente Fox uh, was elected, he was elected with a um, base in the, in the Mexican Congress of only... Uh, uh, you know, 30-some percent. Uh, He was not good at putting uh, coalitions together. Uh, In many respects, President Calderon faces the same kind of problem. Uh, But it is not a problem, I would say, with the design of the Mexican political system itself. It is rather the skill of politicians and their ability to work within the limits that that uh, system imposes uh, and a broader political culture that rises to the occasion of of needing collective action uh, within uh, constitutional uh, constraints and that—that that is the issue that uh, that politicians in the uh, region ought to focus on. Uh, there's a one important set of issues that are actually not in this book that I thought I might uh, raise here because there's one respect in which I think that institutions actually uh, matter quite a lot, which has to do with. Um, the question of rights, you know, there, there's, there's obviously a lot of focus on rewriting constitutions right now because uh, Bolivia and, and uh, um, Venezuela and Ecuador are all in the process of uh, redrafting their constitutions. Uh, and there's one uh, very unfortunate tendency that is actually of rather long standing, uh, which is to increasingly try to deal with the problem of inequality. No, okay, so as I said, I, th- I think that the problem of inequality is is fundamental, and if there's not an effort to deal with this in a sensible way, uh, you're going to be locked into this long-term, um, uh, you know, uh, uneven growth trajectory. But the wrong way to deal with inequality, I think, is by writing uh, second-generation social rights into constitutions, and this is a trend that has taken place all over Latin America uh, the 1988 Brazilian constitution, if you go to the section of that constitution on rights, it's about the size of a small city telephone book, uh, and you know, has not just the right to <laughs> the pursuit of happiness, but to substantive happiness uh, in, in, uh, in many respects. Uh, something similar happened in the rewrite of the Colombian constitution in, uh, uh, in the early 90s, where there's a whole set of social rights, and then... Um, This tutela procedure by which uh, uh, if individual citizens felt that the government was not meeting uh, their social needs, which is pretty across the board uh, the case in in Colombia, they could appeal directly to the court system and to the Supreme Court to have the courts... Uh, issue uh, injunctions in their behalf uh, requiring that the government uh, enforce those rights. And if you look at the rewrite uh, of all of the constitutions uh, in the Andean countries that are now uh, going through so much turmoil, uh, all of them have uh, expanded very dramatically uh, the list of constitutionally mandated uh, social rights uh, in those constitutions. Now, this is problematic from a whole variety of uh, perspectives. Uh, the most important one is that it really undermines uh, the rule of law because if you have provisions, fundamental rights written into a constitution that everybody knows, uh, the government has no uh, uh, possibility of actually enforcing, uh, I believe that it um, uh, weakens the overall uh, support for the rule of law. And actually, uh, you know, as, as a number of writers in our volume pointed out, uh, if there 's a single uh, broad institutional weakness uh, systemic weakness in all Latin American countries, it is in this uh, area uh, of enforceability of rules and, and respect for rule of law across the board and so writing unenforceable rights into a constitution does not um, uh, uh, does not add to that uh, in cases uh, where judges can actually make substantive social policy, as in the United States, I don't think that this is the appropriate uh, place for this to be done, because judges don't have to worry about trading off one kind of social good for another, uh, you know, where... A little more health care may come at the expense of less police protection or uh, schooling. This is something that legislatures are supposed to uh, deal with, but court systems enforcing these blanket rights uh, do not have the capacity to make those kinds of trade offs. They don't have to live within uh, hard budget constraints um, uh, and the like. And finally, I think the reason that uh, a lot of this uh, uh, Constitution rejiggering. Uh, is happening, uh, is that it's going hand-in-hand with an increase in executive powers. Uh, Because once those rights are written into constitutions, then the powerful executives in these countries can enforce uh, selectively the ones that they uh, see fit to enforce, and they will have uh, what they will claim as the mantle of constitutional legitimacy to do this. Of course, none of them is going to be able to enforce all of those rights across the board because they're simply, uh, simply unaffordable. Uh, but it does uh, play into the hands of uh, the attempt to deal with the fundamental problem of social equality by strengthening the executive and by essentially forcing through um, uh, certain kinds of social uh, social change uh, and I would just conclude by saying that my own my own view of the way that this kind of social change ought to happen is you know i 'm a, I'm a i am uh, a small D Democrat I mean I believe in liberal democracy, and I believe that liberal democracy gives you the tools to solve these kinds of problems, and that you do not need these kinds of extraordinary powers that are not going to buy you social consensus in any event uh, in the long run, regardless of what your constitution, uh, regardless of what your constitution uh, tells you and I think that the most successful countries in Latin America are ones like Mexico and Brazil that have uh, democratic constitutional legacies, where the leaders, uh, at least in the past uh, few years, have been willing to live within the constraints imposed uh, by those democratic systems and have been working uh, slowly, piecemeal, to try to uh, reform uh, the many institutions uh, that need reform. And I think the glass is half empty and half full in that regard, because if you look at Macroeconomic policy management, budgeting, uh, public financial management in Latin America today compared to 30 years ago—it's pretty good. Uh, Other areas, uh, uh, less so. But I do think that the—you know—my favorite development economist is Albert Hirschman, and uh, you know, he had this uh, slogan about reform mongering—that that that, you know, there are no shortcuts. Uh, to political reform, either through revolution or through uh, technocratically, uh, 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 technocratic reforms that would be imposed in an authoritarian manner, uh, that you've got to bring people along. And I think that that was true in the past, uh, and I think that it remains uh, true today. So uh, thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much. One of the things that I liked about this very diverse collection of essays is that it does provide a historical analysis of the institutions of Latin America, and it introduces inequality, uh, perhaps, at least in my view, not so much as an economic problem as much as a political problem that leads to the perpetuation of institutions that are, in essence, anti-liberal. I think that that's really the strength of, of this volume. It also correctly, in my view... Uh, highlights that we know very little about changing inequality. About what we can, we know a lot about reducing poverty, but much less about how to change inequality. And and uh, several authors in the volume point out uh, the case of Chile, which interestingly enough is one of the very successful uh, countries in implementing some social policies that are very targeted uh, uh, for the poor. I think that that country stands out uh, apart. Uh, even in that regard, from the, much of the rest of the region, where social policies are virtually unreformed, and uh, it seems to me that uh, one of the one of the keys to Chile is that it is the freest economy uh, in the region, and so uh, that 's the the big lesson that I take away from uh, from this collection, and uh, uh, I guess we can discuss the the balance. Uh, uh, at the after our next speaker, who I will introduce now, next speaker is Norman Loisa from uh, the World Bank. He's the lead economist in the research department of the World Bank. Uh, he has authored uh, several books. He's edited five books and published more than thirty articles in leading uh, professional journals. He is uh, has taught at the University uh, of the Pacific in Lima, Peru, at uh, the Catholic University of Chile. And at the University of Sao Paulo, he has uh, written uh, largely on Latin America and uh, is a real expert on the economics and institutions of the region. Please help me welcome Norman Loisa.
2: It's a it's a real honor to to be here. Uh, Discussing this book by Francis Fukuyama, and for this uh, great honor, I have to thank the Cairo Institute, and in particular, Ian Vasquez. I enjoyed reading this, this book, and I learned a lot from it. I think it's an important contribution to understand the development gap between Latin America and, and the U.S., and Latin America and the rest of the advanced world. This is one of the cases where the whole is more than the sum of its parts, and this is because, I believe, uh, uh, the hand of Francis, a uh, uh, very able hand of Francis Fukuyama. He poses the question very clearly and specifically. Then he instructs the contributors to, uh, uh, to propose a particular answer and solution to this question. And then, in, uh, in the last chapter of the book, he articulates this answer by putting together the chapters and making sense... Uh, of all of them, uh, giving a sense at the end that, uh, that in fact, uh, an important contribution has been, has been made. And uh, I agree with uh, its main co- conclusions. Uh, what explains the development gap between Latin America and the U.S.? Well, it's not geography. It's not culture or religion. It's not eth- ethnicity, per se. And it's not... Uh, U.S. domination of the region. So that's hopeful, because those things are very hard to to change. It's very hard to move uh, Peru from uh, Latin America to Europe, and uh, it's very hard to change the culture or the religion of a whole country. Uh, So what what explains the gap then? It's a combination of policy mistakes, that had been perpetuated over time, and institutional failure. These things are uh, amenable to change, amenable to reform, and this is why the conclusion in the end, it's uh, a hopeful conclusion. You can do things to change the situation and revert, close the gap. But since my role here is uh, sort of a devil, devil's advocate, I uh, have to pinpoint uh, a couple of issues where I uh, would tend to disagree with uh, with the book and its conclusions. But I have to note that my disagreement is only a question of emphasis, because Francis and the contributors of the the book uh, do uh, claim these issues as important. But I will just want to say that. Uh, In my perspective, the development gap uh, between Latin America and the rest of the advanced world is due mainly to the fact that most Latin American countries and Latin American people have not had long extended periods of true economic freedom, economic freedom that has been supported by also political freedom. So I think this is this, this is the central issue that we that uh, that explains why these countries have not have not advanced. Since uh, the colony, the people in Latin America have not had have not been able to use this right to work, to produce, to trade freely. It started in colonial times, as I said, at the macroeconomic level, where Spain. Uh, imposed a uh, monopoly of trade with uh, its colonies. And of, and this uh, monopoly of trade, in fact, uh, caused the demise of the colonies, but also of Spain, which uh, in the uh, 1500s and 1600s was uh, the world leader And because of this monopoly, because of this protectionism. And all the disadvantages that it created, uh, then... Uh, became far less advanced than, for instance, Great Britain, uh, Germany, and other countries that uh, that embraced trade, uh, openness, and uh, uh, economic freedom. Uh, To be be true, uh, Latin America has had, from time to time, these periods of, uh, of economic freedom. And during those periods, it has expanded and it has changed uh, importantly. We may remember the, the brief period uh, between 1808 and uh, 1814 when uh, Napoleon invaded Spain. And uh, because of this, the, the monopoly of trade that Spain had imposed on its colonies broke down, and this was a short period of time, but trade flourished. We look at the statistics, we would see that uh, trade increased many fold. And it was because of this taste of freedom that uh, these colonies had that uh, the impetus for independence grew significantly. And it was only a few years later that most uh, large Latin American countries uh, obtained independence. Unfortunately, the state was quickly captured by interest groups and some elites. And this economic freedom collapsed. Also, the beginning of the 20th century, until the US and world protectionism of the 1930s, Latin America also experienced these periods of uh, expansion, growth, and closing of the, of the, of the gap. And uh, what we have seen in the last few years, the last few decades, with Chile, Brazil, Colombia, and Mexico in particular, uh, tell us that, that, that in fact, it's uh it's this economic freedom that is allowing countries to uh to close the gap with respect to the developed world uh, it's i can give you other, uh, some examples of uh of some gaps that have expanded unfortunately and also some gaps that are that uh, have are are closing and uh i think behind those those trends, we see the lack or the presence of this economic freedom. Let me give you just two examples of uh, gaps that have expanded in, in, recent, uh, in recent times. We compared North, Co- North Korea and South Korea, these two, reg- these two uh, regions in the 1950s. They were basically the same. Uh, Fifty years later, North, the GDP per capita of North Korea was only 8% of the GDP per capita of South Korea. It only took 50 years for this tremendous collapse. In the case of uh, closer to to home, in Latin America, uh, Peru and Chile, in 1975, had about the same GDP per capita. But then uh, Peru decided to move towards populism, socialism, and uh, restriction of economic freedoms, and Chile moved in the opposite direction. And by 2005, uh, the GDP per capita of Peru was only 35% of that of Chile. That is, in only a matter of 30 years, the GDP per capita of a country collapsed to one-third of this other. And where we see uh, economic freedom expanding, uh, the gaps are indeed closing. Uh, so I told you that uh, Spain was not able to advance as quickly as the UK because of protectionism in trade in particular. But then uh, with the uh, liberal reform, uh, economic reforms uh, in the 1960s under Franco, consolidated later, later in the democratic uh, times after 75. Uh, Spain was able to, to grow from a GDP per capita that was 50% of the UK uh, in 1960 to 80% in 2005. Quite a remarkable change. In the case of uh, two other examples, yeah, and, and I will uh, close this uh, series of, uh, of examples. Uh, China and Japan, in the 1990s, uh, when uh, China decided to... Give more economic freedom to its to their people, to its people. Uh, the Chinese GDP per capita was only seven point five percent of uh, the GDP per capita in Japan, only 70, 7.5%. percent. Uh, fifteen years later, this ratio was of the order of twenty percent. So, in only fifteen years, the gap had was able to close from seven point five to 22%. Maybe even more remarkable is the case of South Korea and uh, Japan. The gap between the two uh, was enormous in the 19, in the, at the beginning of, 19, of 1970. It was uh, the GDP per capita of South Korea was 20% of that of Japan. Uh, by 2005, the GDP per capita of South Korea was of the order of 75% of that of Japan. That is also quite a remarkable change. And what we see in all these cases is a pattern of economic freedom that is then supported by political freedom. It's this emphasis and, and this sequence that I want to, 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 to emphasize. So, I agree very much with, uh, with uh, Francis in the his uh, conclusion that political uh, and institutional development must accompany uh, economic freedoms. I think this is what, in fact, guarantees and supports uh, the benefits of economic freedom. Without this political and institutional support, then uh, revolutions reversals with, uh, uh, would be more common and uh, would actually um, uh, produce uh, that even these economic freedoms disappear but I believe this is the role of this is the role of institutions it's the protection of these basic economic freedoms that that, that allow uh, development in, in all directions. In Latin America, as uh, Francis said, there has been a long history of captured states. So the state has very, very, rare, uh, very rarely uh, been in favor and uh, strongly uh, uh, in favor of, uh, of uh, economic rights. It has been abusive in uh, most instances, it has provided wrong incentives to the people. So, looking forward, what do we what do we uh, uh, see? Uh, what do we need? And this is uh, what I, the way I will uh, close this uh, these remarks. I think that what we need is to consolidate the economic freedoms that have been gained in uh, in uh, many of these Latin American countries and develop the institutions that can support those economic freedoms. The temptation here is to uh, believe that the the development of institutions means uh, the enlargement of the state. I think just the the opposite should occur. That is that development of institutions should actually mean having states that have a more narrow and better focus, number one. And number two, states that are able to encourage the participation of the private sector in the attainment of most of uh, their objectives. I think uh, the reason why central banks, uh, or the independence of central banks, has become such an important institutional development in uh, Latin America and the rest of the world is precisely because central banks have a very narrow and uh, a specific focus. In their case, it's the, the it's maintaining price stability. So they have developed a set of policies, a set of rules that allows them to obtain that very specific, narrow objective. I think that this can apply to many other instit- many other uh, state and government institutions. Second point, as I remarked, in this. Uh, institutional development, should be encouraging the private participation in uh, the achievement of most uh, social objectives. That, that uh, there, is, uh, there is some important experience in that regard. Uh, for instance, in the cases of uh, the public-private partnerships for infrastructure development that uh, have rendered, I think, many fruits, and that will keep rendering in the, in the future. To end, uh, I uh, want to emphasize that uh, what we see in the region is one more great divide, and maybe 10, 15 years from now, when we talk about gaps again, we are going to no longer talk about a single uh, Latin America region. But, in fact, we'll we'll talk about two different regions that, in the 2000s, chose a different route. On the one hand, we have the axis of uh, Venezuela, Argentina, Ecuador, and Bolivia that have chosen to restrict economic freedoms and uh, with that restriction also the restriction of political freedoms with uh, populist myopic regimes and then we have another another access of uh of countries that are favoring these economic freedoms and uh betting for a market oriented regime where Mexico, Chile, Colombia, Peru and and Brazil are i uh, i I wonder what will happen 15 years from now but i think that if history teaches something and uh if the lessons of this uh, of this book are correct, that we will see another great gap between these two, these two regions, and I fear for that. But thank you, and I want to thank, uh, again, Francis for an excellent, excellent book.
0: Thanks very much, uh, Norman. As I said, this is a collection of pretty diverse uh, authors and, and views. And I think that many of them would probably uh share some of your uh your points of view, although some do uh, mention uh the role of uh, social spending and so on, though they don 't dwell on it very much and so for that reason, at least I find that less less of a compelling uh, case. We have time for uh for questions and answers now. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand and identify yourself and your affiliation and uh ask your question. We'll take one right up here in the front, please. Thank you very
2: much. Hello, my name is Renato Reyes, I'm political counselor of the Embassy of Peru. Thank you very much for the excellent presentation. Uh, I would like to ask both of you, if possible, bring to the table how to, to, uh, to build a bridge between social development and economic development. Because I think this is one of the main questions that our countries in Latin America are waiting for an answer. No.
1: Thank you. <clears throat> well, um, that's uh, that's of course a central question that's uh, uh, posed by uh, this this underlying problem of equality. Um, as I tried to indicate. Uh, I think that there are – there's a general approach and then a targeted approach. Uh, you want you – you have to have economic growth uh, as a precondition uh, for social development. And a lot of social development will simply happen if you, get, if you have growth. Uh, people have more opportunities once they get richer for educating their children, for moving into, you know, different uh, occupations uh, – uh, and the like, and so growth is 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 obviously um, uh, absolutely necessary uh, there 's another layer in which I think that you know in broad fiscal policy, as I said, uh, uh, resources are not a- allocated very um, uh, fairly; they tend to get captured by more elite groups in in you know that happens in the United States as well, but it 's particularly a problem I think in many Latin American countries, and so the overall um, um, Nature of, of fiscal policy could fix a lot of the problems that exist uh, if there was a political consensus behind doing that, and I think the, the best politicians like uh, Fernando Enrique Cardoso in Brazil were able to use their systems uh, uh, to, to begin that. Uh, but then you get to the question of more targeted programs. Um, uh, Ian is right that this was not a big theme, but it was a big theme in my chapter because I actually believe in this. Uh, I I think that you cannot simply rely on growth and free markets to solve these social gap problems. And I think that if you have well-designed, targeted social policies uh, that uh, uh, target the poor, uh, like uh, the Progresa Opportunidades uh, program in Mexico or like... Uh, Bolsa Família in in um, uh, Brazil, it is both uh, helpful for social inclusion and it is also good politics because uh, politicians uh, uh, tend to write off these non elite groups, but they're in fact important you know sources of of uh, potential support. And what I mean by a well designed program is the results ought to be measurable. One of the things about Uh, Progresa Opportunidades is is it was was designed by a bunch of economists with a lot of econometric controls where they could actually see whether the program was having uh, an effect. It was funded uh, in a way that um, uh, looked to uh, long-term budget sustainability so it would not be the cause of of fiscal deficits uh, uh, and the like. And they were designed as universal programs, meaning that there was a universal uh, entitlement, you know, means-tested entitlement. Uh, one of the dangers of that kind of program is what's going on right now in Nicaragua, where they have a, a, a conditional cash transfer program that, uh, you know, Daniel Ortega, unfortunately, is now, you know, trying to manipulate and, and, and you know, turning it towards people that supported him politically uh, and the like. And, you know, that's one of the problems with this kind of program is that they're subject to an enormous amount of uh, of abuse. But I don't think that just the pure liberal program of free trade and free markets by itself is going to be sufficient to, you know, to close that gap. I think you need a, a social agenda as well. There a question here. Yeah, just wait for the microphone,
0: please. My name is Carlos Perea from... ICLS,
2: uh, you seem to say that uh, inequality is the problem, or that's a big uh, uh, problem here. But it seems to me that economic growth does lead to this inequality. And as as the world as a whole is growing, it's becoming more inequality. In the United States, it's even becoming more inequality in the United States. So it looks like um, the United States is having problems, with as as its as its uh importance in the in the whole world diminishes so that is that the rest of the world is pressuring the united states to become more unequal inequal in this global competition
1: uh, well i understand the thrust of the the question of the 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 comment uh there is um you know, there is a trade-off between um, uh, equality and growth uh, under, you know, certain circumstances. And so you can have terrific growth, you can have pretty good poverty reduction, uh, but it will leave you with a legacy of greater uh, inequality. And then it is a matter of the political system, the degree to which uh, the political system is able to then bring in the People that don't do as well, you know, uh, but but if you if you can presume a high level of growth, uh, oftentimes people will live with that uh, because they'll get the sense that the you know growth is raising all boats, even if they're not rising at a at an equal rate. Uh, And it's hard to know when you reach a tipping point where that differential rate of growth between different parts of the population then spills over into uh, political instability. But it you know, it happens. Uh, and that's why, again, I mean, I just want to say that that's why looking at the historical record of Latin America is extremely important because it doesn't happen in any given year, but on a, approximately a generational cycle, you get these big upheavals like the one we're seeing uh, in the Andes right now, where that uneven distribution of, of growth uh, finally pushes the political system into a uh, into a crisis, and then growth stops for the next you know um, uh, decade or two uh, so I think that you know if you 're interested in long term growth, uh, you really need to pay attention to uh, the way that uh, people share in it and and there are policy means by which you can uh, mitigate the impact because we all want growth you, you can 't have <laughs> you can 't have social development without growth but but you also need to you know
0: we're going to move on though, but you just to just to clarify actually uh, global inequality has uh, gone down in the last uh, 20 or thirty years, whereas in in some countries uh in inequality within countries has uh, gone up, and in other countries it has not. We'll take a question from over here. Could you turn that mic on, please? Uh, my question is with regard to uh, the U- U.S. policy toward the uh, coca trade. Uh, I-, I think it's been very ineffective, uh, alternative crops, et cetera. We have a, a terrible addiction problem, uh, and our policy, I think, is hurting the uh, indigenous population in the Andes. Could you comment on whether you think the, uh, pro- uh, the solution is-, is-, is more military force or perhaps the other side, legalization?
1: Well, um, I I think it's very hard to argue that our drug policy uh, in Latin America has been a big success over the last <laughs> uh, couple of generations because you know we um, you know we produce this incredible level of demand in the United States uh, uh, for these drugs and then uh, we focus all of our uh, abatement policy on trying to go after the source without you know doing much about uh, the demand, and then, in the case of a country like mexico that 's just across the border you also it 's also fueled by a pretty good trade in guns and and you know weapons that all the narco traffickers uh, end up using and so it 's quite understandable that that people in the region feel quite uh, resentful that all of the high cost abatement is is put on their shoulders uh, uh, and and uh, not on Americans now, what the uh, appropriate uh, policies, you know, I would actually, personally, I would consider legalization, but I don't think it's got a snowball's chance in hell of actually getting through the Congress. So I just don't think that, you know, that's going to happen. We could certainly invest a lot more in trying to abate demand, you know, through other means other than uh, than legalization. But I do think that Americans have got to realize that, that this problem is not one that's generated uh, in Latin America. It's one that's generated in... Uh, uh, you know, in in our society.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: Well, I, I I see the the, the failure of uh, the prohibition regime as a, as, a, as a government failure. Um, it's it's just one more example of a, of a situation that is perceived as undesirable. That is, the consumption of drugs, where. Some people believe that governments have to intervene and have to curtail this uh, consumption and believe that uh, the way to do this is by enacting laws against it. And as you pointed out, they have failed miserably, and that the main uh, uh, sufferers of these negative consequences are uh, developing countries, and many of them located in uh, in Latin America, like uh, Peru, Bolivia, and Colombia. Um, uh, But pragmatically, I agree with Francis that it would be very difficult for the U.S. to accept this uh, this, this policy mistake and and lift the prohibition regime. Uh, But that doesn't mean that the developing countries should not uh, raise the issue and uh, promote the debate and maybe, as it has happened with other, in other cases, that the uh, reason will stand, and uh, the policies will be changed i don 't think a, a regime of uh, uh, complete legalization is possible or desirable, but a, re, a mixed regime of regulation and uh, and more uh, and more uh, uh, self family discipline would be uh, uh, would conduce to much greater social benefits. And, in fact, let me just uh, finish by telling you that uh, uh, Phil Kiefer and I are, are actually editing a book on the negative consequences of uh, the prohibition regime for developing countries, and uh, I hope that uh, maybe in some future occasion we'll have the, the honor to present it here.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Andre Ilarinov. If to summarize uh, what is the reason or what are the reasons that would explain the gap between Latin America and North America over the centuries
1: well it 's very simple um, in Latin America, you can achieve reasonable rates of growth, but it gets gener- uh, it gets interrupted every generation or two by political instability, and the political instability is fundamentally caused by the fact that you haven't solved the underlying uh, social inequality problem. That's that's the simplest way of stating it. Uh, right there. With
0: Bill Yates,
3: please. Guillermo Yates from Argentina. I see the gap going further back. In the states the colonies operated for 150 years through property, trade, habeas corpus. Nothing of this sort happened in Latin America. And the constitutions which were copied from the states were handed down by generals. In the case of Argentina, a general who won a war. In the states, each article was discussed, the Federalist Papers, anti federalist Uh, And as far as after the independence... You had, a, you had a system of corruption before independence and after. So all of this is very hard to change because when the economy grows, some group is transferring huge resources to another group. So you're successful when uh, you can trade but and you keep the money, but then the sole story goes again because your bottom is rotten.
1: Um, well, I agree. I mean, I think that the, as I was saying, I think that the, um, you know, probably the biggest uh, and most serious institutional difference uh, between the two parts of the Western Hemisphere lies in the rule of law, uh, that it was well established uh, in colonial times in North America and it's been uh, observed more in the breach in most Latin American countries. This is a historical uh, inheritance that goes back really to the Spanish uh, uh, Empire. The, you know, uh, this is something actually that I've been working on in a book, uh, in a subsequent research for a subsequent book. But it's really quite interesting if you look at the uh, Charles V and Philip II. You know, these two great uh, 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 emperors of the Spanish uh, Empire in the fifteenth, in the in in the sixteenth uh, uh, century. Uh, Charles V uh, had a close-to-universal empire, so he controlled the Iberian Peninsula, northern Italy, uh, uh, Flanders, uh, the New World, uh, uh, parts of Germany, Austria. Uh, and the only tax base that he had where he could reliably tax people was Castile. And so he had to beg, borrow, and steal all of the revenues to finance all of his wars, uh, 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 Basically, on the backs of of um, you know uh, bondholders in uh, mostly in uh, in Spain, every bad fiscal habit that any Latin American country has um, uh, has demonstrated uh, had its origins in in the old regime of of Spain, uh, in terms of debasing the currency, uh, running uh, fiscal deficits uh, in. Um, Uh, extremely poor, uh, you know, tax administration and so forth. What happened, by contrast, in uh, the 16th century uh, and and the 17th century, particularly in England, was that the king tried to raise taxes for wars uh, and uh, tried to extract it out of elite uh, 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 taxpayers. Uh, In Spain and France, those elite taxpayers managed to escape taxation uh, they they use their political power to avoid uh, to get tax exemptions, and in England it produced the glorious revolution, the English Civil War, and the Glorious Revolution, in which the taxpayers said, "We're only going to agree to be taxed by the crown if we get a say in in the way that that money is used." And actually, the level of per capita taxation. In England shot up over the 18th century after that fundamental bargain was made because people were actually willing to pay the state higher taxes if they had some democratic accountability in the way that those taxes were used. And in Latin America, uh, or in the Spanish Empire, that, that simply never happened, that the elites were always able uh, to manipulate the system to, and, and Tocqueville describes this as liberty understood as, uh, as privilege. That the elites were able to buy themselves, use their political power to exempt themselves from a uniform rule of law, and that is, uh, in fact, the inheritance that uh, you know that I think uh, is the basis for the levels of corruption and 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 the fact. Uh, in fact, in 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 the book, if I can plug one other chapter, uh, uh, Natalia Botana has a chapter on fiscal citizenship in Argentina. Argentina is a great case where tax evasion, you know, the level of tax evasion is enormous. Uh, but the basic reason that Argentines don't want to pay taxes is that they think the government's going to waste it. It's going to go into corruption or diversion or, you know, rent seeking of uh, of various sorts. And so they get into this vicious cycle uh, where the state then doesn't have the resources to do things, you know, uh, like enforce laws and and and, um, and, the like. And I think it it underlines the the degree to which the uh, English uh, system that we are the heirs of in the United States was very much due uh, to the government's need to extract taxes, and in the bargain, uh, uh, come to a constitutional settlement that put uh, clear legal limits on uh, on the state's ability to do that, and that that constitutional pact or that fundamental social contract was simply never achieved. Uh, It was never achieved in colonial times, and it's been, you know, uh, I think extremely weak in all the, uh, uh, you know, independent states uh, 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 following.
0: The Glorious Revolution was a big step in the development of the the rule of law. I always ask people uh, who work on these issues whether they know how to promote the rule of law. Do you have any idea? Because so, so far, I have never gotten a satisfactory answer. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on how to actually promote the rule of law?
1: Well, um, yeah, it's, it's of all of the areas of governance reform, it's probably the most difficult because it's, it's both got a normative dimension and it's a very big system because the rule of law con- consists of all of your courts, all of the the judges, all of the lawyers, all of the policemen, you know all of the people that are charged with enforcing uh, the rule of law, and to reform that large and complex and interdependent a system is is something that we 've not uh, done terribly uh, well at. Uh, I would say that part of the solution lies in the demand for law because if you simply try to do it in a top down way. Uh, uh, you're not going to get anywhere people need law you know they 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 poor people need law because if in your barrio you know you're 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 worried about you know being kidnapped or or your children getting sucked into a drug gang uh you know you don't like that situation, uh, and similarly, if you're a businessman thinking of plopping down, you know, fifty million dollars for a factory, if you don't have a rule of law, you're you're also uh, not going to make that investment. And so, I think part of the key of that is is exploiting and promoting that demand, which which exists in every society, with um, uh, certain you know basic legal uh, institutions. But uh, but this is, I think, the subject for another book. Yeah. <laughs> We'll take
0: a question up front, please.
3: Thank you. My name is Sonia Schott. I am with a bunch of Latin American media. Um, What lessons are to be learned for Latin America, considering that uh, the general perception is that institutions in the U.S., and a developed world, fail it, try to avoid uh, the current economic crisis. And most recently in a meeting, in a G7 meeting in Washington, all countries agree on the reshaping of the institutions. I would like to hear some comments on that. Thank yeah. you.
1: Uh, well, that's a, <laughs> a really good question. And, in fact, uh, I'm going to be uh, sponsoring a conference at SAIS uh, in April uh, to look precisely at you know what are going to be the long-term um, lessons drawn by developing countries from the uh, financial crisis. Because I think uh, my own pr- uh, uh, opinion is that we never learned the lessons of the Asian financial crisis adequately back in 97, 98, uh, where you had a lot of highly liquid, you know, hot money flowing into Asia to get into the Asian miracle, very poorly uh, regulated uh, financial system that misallocated that money. The money left uh, overnight and left those economies devastated. Uh, And we should have drawn the conclusion that the financial sector needs a much higher degree of, you know, prudential regulation Uh, than we were willing to give it. And what we did was we allowed a shadow finance sector to emerge, you know, in terms of all of the CDOs and derivatives and, you know, packaged, you know, securitized mortgages. And I think out of a basically ideological belief that these markets would take care of themselves, we said we don't need to regulate that. And I think we're paying a huge uh, price for that. So there's going to be, I I just see inevitably... um, and I think most people on Wall Street at this point agree with this, there's going to be a lot more regulation of the financial sector. But the key issues, I think, go way beyond that because, uh, you know, one one issue that you need to think about is is complete financial openness with good regulation actually the desirable goal that you want to eventually get to or for developing countries... Is more the Asian model, uh, where you manage these things to a greater extent, uh, uh, preferable. And I would say the jury's out on that because you know the, the complete openness uh, forces you to uh, these requirements for good governance and good policy that are extremely demanding. And if you don't meet it, uh, you're liable to a kind of volatility that a more protected financial sector doesn't you know doesn't have to deal with. But this is a question we're going to be debating this nonstop, I think, you know, for the next, uh, next few years. Needless to say, there's
0: plenty of people, including in this room, who would disagree with some of those yeah. assertions. Uh, we have time for just a couple of, of more questions. We'll take one here and then one here. Quick questions and quick answers. I'm
2: Jose Lagasca from Ecuador. I don't belong to any affiliation. Uh, you talk about the size of our constitutions. Uh, we have uh, right now an enacted constitution of, of more than four hundred articles, and lots of lots of rights. And you talk about also a smart social politics. How can we establish those kind of poli- politics without uh, enacting a new constitution?
1: Well, I I think that. It should not require uh, a new constitution to implement uh, a good social policy. I mean, as I said, I think that uh, you have examples of well-specified def- uh, well, um, social programs, very large ones. Bolsa Familia in Brazil uh, reaches about 15 million poor Brazilian uh, families, which means that it reaches you know, probably 40, 50 million poor Brazilians. So it's a very large, uh, uh, very extensive program. It's had measurable impact on the degree of of social inequality uh, in uh, Brazil, but it has all been done under this very weak uh, and, I would say, poorly written Brazilian 1988 constitution. It did not require well, of course, that constitution's got a lot of social rights, but that's not why Bolsa Familia happened. The reason Bolsa Familia happened was that you got a legislative majority to approve you know, that, that uh, spending under those constitutional rules. And I just think that it is an illusion throughout Latin America to think that you're going to solve these social equality problems simply by writing them into constitutions. You're not going to do that. It, you know, that's not the way democracies work. They don't come from... Uh, those foundational legal documents, they come from developing a political consensus in favor of doing the right thing uh, in terms of a sustainable social policy that has to be then traded off against you know, uh, other goals, growth, uh, uh, budget stability, and, 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 and things like that. We'll take one last quick question in the front here.
0: Thank you. <coughs> Emilio Adolfo Rivero, New Cuba Coalition. I had some questions and comments. I prefer to drop them okay. and try to make a contribution to the K2 Institute. Sir, my compliments for what you're doing and the brilliancy of your speakers. And my contribution would be this, or my suggestion to you. As I have seen in other places, it's very convenient to include in a panel an ombudsman, That is to say, a commentator, someone who would receive the papers two or three weeks before the event, and he would develop his own paper, and it would be clarifying for all of us. Thank you, Okay, thanks very much. The book has been on sale for several months now, so we will be selling them upstairs, a limited number, uh, I think at a uh, slight discount. Uh, so, you're free to, to uh, buy those. I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and please help me in thanking our speakers.